lot of Sundays we want to say yay after the choir sings. <laughs> That's awesome. If you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, this month of December, we have been looking at Christmas in Isaiah, and especially in the first section of Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, Isaiah breaks up into two or three large sections, the first 39 chapters, um, and then chapters 40 to 55, and then 56 to the end. And in that first large section, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the first 12 chapters uh, really are directed mainly to God's people in Judah. Uh, and there are words of confrontation and words of comfort. We've looked particularly at the words of comfort. Isaiah 2, uh, the mountain of the Lord uh, that supernaturally, magnetically draws people to the Lord of the mountain. We've seen the branch in Isaiah 4, uh, this royal figure whose character and rule establishes the mountain as the place for God's people. We've seen the sign from Isaiah 7, directed to Ahaz as a sign of judgment, but for us in these New Testament times, a sign of hope and salvation fulfilled in Jesus Christ our Lord. And then last night we looked at Isaiah 9, the child, this one who's both son of David and son of God, who gives us the things we most earnestly desire. But this morning we come and uh, the title I gave it in your bulletin was The Fulfillment. If you take notes, you may want to scratch that out. I'll give it a new title, The King. Because here we see the coming of the King and the fulfillment of all that's gone before. All of the themes of comfort and hope in the first um, 10 chapters to this point, they're all brought together here in chapter 11 as a kind of consummation of our hopes and, and desires. They all find their fulfillment in the king. But in order to see who this king is and even more to delight in him this morning, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do come as your people today to hear the word of the Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and that you would open our eyes of faith this morning, that we would see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning is the first, first nine verses excuse me, of chapter 11 of Isaiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse... And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf. And the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole 
of a cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So for the last few years, we've gotten our Christmas trees from Dan West over there on Poplar. But there was a stretch of time, uh, especially when we lived in Louisville and St. Louis, where we went out to Christmas tree farms and went through the ritual of cutting down our Christmas trees. And I've always been amazed at Christmas tree farms, the, the amount of effort that goes into caring for and growing and shaping those trees just to have people cut them all down. And you go through the field looking for just the right tree. And as you're being taken out to the place where the, the tree farmers want you to cut down the trees for this year, you, you inevitably pass by fields of stumps where, where past Christmas tree cutter downers came out to find their perfect tree and cut it down. And all that remains is this stump with, with the grass growing all around. They're reminders, I think, those stumps. Reminders of, of the farmer's care in the past. But also those stumps are a sign. A sign that, that the care has come to an end. And they've been relieved of their responsibility. It's striking, you know, that if you were to read through Isaiah's prophecy to this point, that twice in Isaiah's prophecy to this point, you find mention of stumps. Uh, at the end of Isaiah chapter 6, God has warned his people, these people who refuse to listen to Isaiah's message, that, that the result of refusing the gospel that's coming from Isaiah is that they would be cut down like trees. And the stump would remain, Isaiah 6.13, in the place where it is fell. There's stumps where Israel should be. And then at the end of chapter 10, in the passage directly before what we've read this morning, God warns not his people, but the Assyrians, that the same fate is coming for them. That they too will be cut down. And in the verse just before what we read, in, in chapter 10, verse 33 and 34, you find there, if your Bible's still open, behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. And so both with Judah and with Assyria, with God's people and God's enemies, God warns them that he will cut them down in judgment. It reminds you of, of Johnny Cash's song that, that went, you can run on for a long time, but sooner or later God's going to cut you down. That, that's what God's saying to both his people and to his enemies, that, that judgment is coming. And, and yet, even in the midst of the promised judgment to come, even with these pictures of stumps that not only remind of care past, but signal the end of that care, God, God doesn't give up on his people. Judgment is not God's ultimate word. No, no hope is. At the end of chapter 6, 
After telling God's people that they would become like stumps, God says the holy seed is in its stump. And here, at the beginning of chapter 11, God promises new life, new beginnings, a new world out of the stump of Jesse. How's that even possible? How is it possible that admit the barrenness of the of the fields in which we wander, the, the emptiness that we all too often experience? How's it possible for that to be turned around, for, for our lives to be made new? Well, Isaiah's been working towards this answer. How could it be possible for new life to begin, for new hopes to emerge, for a new world to come? He's been working towards his answer from the beginning of his prophecy in the first 11 chapters of this book. He's told us about the mountain, the mountain of the Lord where he dwells. He's told us about the branch who makes the unholy holy. He's told us about the sign of the virgin-born child, this child who's a son, who's also called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God everlasting father the prince of peace and now he brings all of these promises together in a single final thrust of hope how's it possible that god might grant us new life when so much around us is empty and barren how 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 is it possible through the king through this king that he describes here in isaiah chapter 11 For us and for all those who hope in this king, he represents a new beginning. That's what verse 1 tells you. Look at it. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, there's a sense in which this king is coming, is in David's line. But the language here is different, isn't it? We saw last night that, that, that the coming child, the coming king, would sit on David's throne. But here, Isaiah uses this strange phrase, the stump of Jesse. What's that about? Well, there's a sense in which, of course, David, King David from about 1000 BC, King David represented a new beginning from Jesse, He's he's coming as the son of Jesse, and he represents a new royal line. But what Isaiah sees here is not simply the continuation of what David represented, but rather a new beginning, a a new start from Jesse himself. This, This king, this coming king represents a new beginning, And this coming king, who is this new beginning, is is a branch that that has great fruitfulness. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. As Isaiah 4 foresaw, which we've already looked at together. What was before a stump is now a fruitful tree. What was left for dead now has new life and is flourishing. Well, how's that possible? How is this new beginning possible? Well, through the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 2 has a sevenfold description of how the Holy Spirit impels and empowers the king. You see it there. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's the first. And then three pairs. 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This sevenfold description represents the completeness of the spirit resting upon this king. This spirit, the Holy Spirit, will make this king indescribably wise. His wisdom and understanding will be obvious to everyone who hears them. They will say, no man has ever spoken like this man has. The spirit will make the king indescribably powerful. His might is evidenced in strategy and tactics that will certainly succeed. And the Holy Spirit will make this king thoroughly holy so that his knowledge and fear would be directed to the Lord and evidenced in his life. So the king would be wise, powerful, and holy, delighting in God. What does that sound like? Doesn't it sound like Isaiah 9? The child who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Doesn't it sound like Jesus, the one endowed with the Spirit because he's the Son of God and Son of David? Isn't this king the one we come to worship and and adore today? This king whose name is Jesus, who represents a new beginning, not only a new beginning in world history, but a new beginning in your history? Jesus is this king, the king that's being described here, this one who's not just in the line of David, but of course is a new beginning from the stump of Jesse who represents new life where there was no hope before. And Jesus, the king, comes to offer a new reign, a new ruling over his world. Look at how his reign is described in verse 3. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loin. What's what's the work of this king? Well, he's a judge. But notice that this judge... This king, he, he doesn't judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Now, just think about that for a minute. Like, how else is a judge supposed to do his work? I mean, judges decide disputes by what their eyes see. The lawyers come and they present their evidence to the judge or to the jury. And they see the evidence. Judges decide disputes by what their ears hear, the testimony that they hear. And so every human judge decides disputes. They exercise judgment based on what their eyes see, the evidence they see, and the testimony they hear. But not this judge. Not this king. Because this king doesn't look at the outward appearances. He can actually penetrate to the human heart. This is a king who's not swayed by wealth or power, influence or connections, by how good or how poor your lawyer is. No, he does what is right in every circumstance. This is the king who will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity, which means that the needy and the oppressed, the poor and the vulnerable, they all have hope. And he is the kind of king, this kind of king, Not because of some external law that makes him so. 
He's this kind of judge, not because of some extrinsic coercion that forces him to be right and just. No, he's the kind of king, this kind of king, because this is who he really is. If you were to strip him all the way down so that you could see the the belt on his loins, what would you find? What, What would you find if you stripped this king bare? You'd find righteousness and you'd find faithfulness. This king is right and just down to the bone. And he is steadfastly loyal to his own. In other words, you can trust this king. You can trust Jesus, the king, because he can see your heart. And he knows you, and yet he does not judge you. He does not condemn you. But he rescues you and saves you. You're poor. You're needy. You're vulnerable. You wonder, is there any hope? This king says, yes, there's hope for you. Not because of your wealth or your connections, your power, your influence. No, there's hope for you because this king reigns and rules in just this way. This is so different from every other ruler, every other leader we've ever known. We look at our leaders today. And no matter what side of the political aisle you you find yourself on, it seems that so many are out for themselves, advancing their own interests or the interests of their their cronies or their constituents. And even within the church, you find leaders who, who seem to be out just for themselves to be somebody, to build platforms for themselves and to advance their own cause. We find this in the workplace as well. We work for bosses who seem capricious at best and narcissistic at worst. We fear speaking up when we face these challenges because we fear the injustice of a, of a termination or, or of a loss of influence at work. And we look around at our worlds and it seems like a barren place because we don't know leaders like this. We, we don't know kings like this. Instead, we seem to see everything cut down, everything barren, stumps everywhere. And we long for this kind of king who represents a new beginning, who, who rules in this way, who might bring about a, a, a new reign that represents a new world. And what, what Isaiah sees is when this king comes, he brings a world, a new world that, that really is kind of unbelievable. We're overwhelmed by this description that you find beginning in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Look at this new world. It's, it's so different, isn't it, from the world that we know. Here in this new world is conciliation, natural enemies, predators, opponents, reconciled and living together. Wolves living with lambs, leopards lying down with goats, calves and lions stabling together. Here in this new world is change. The very nature, the very character of the world is different. Not just cows, but bears grazing in the field. Who's ever seen that happen? Not just oxen 
But lions eating straw, usually it's the lions eating the oxen, not, not eating what the oxen eat. But what accounts for this conciliation and change, this conciliation of enemies, this change of nature? What accounts for it? Well, in this new world, the curse is removed. The curse is reversed. It's undone. It's gone forever. How do we know? Because the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Do you remember back to the beginning of Genesis? The beginning of, the Genesis, of Genesis, which really was kind of the end of the beginning in chapter 3 with the fall? What was the curse that God proclaimed, that he declared upon the serpent? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. But what Isaiah sees here is that the offspring of the woman no longer fears the offspring of the serpent because the curse is no more. In that day, in that new world, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Zion is a, is a, is a whole world now. Zion is the new world made up of new people, representing a new beginning with a great king who begins a new reign. How's this new world possible? How's it possible? It's possible because the knowledge of the Lord will cover the world as the waters cover the sea. The knowledge of the Lord. Well, who is he? Well, this Lord is the king. The king whose name is Jesus. This son of David who is the son of God. This one who is the new beginning. The one whom we know and celebrate today on Christmas Day. Today we celebrate the birth of this king. This one who represents this new beginning. Who rules with justice and righteousness. And who brings about a new world. That's why the angels sang. That's why they lit up the night sky. That's why they told the shepherds that there's good news, the best news. Because born to you this day in the city of David is the Messiah, the King. He's here. He has come. And he saves us from our sins. No wonder, with the announcement, no wonder on this day there's such joy. But friends, listen to me. The King's coming again. And when he does, he will fully and finally accomplish all that Isaiah declares here. He will come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And on that day, there truly will be joy for all the world. You know, it's, it's an interesting fact that the most published Christmas song in the 20th century was not actually written as a Christmas song. Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World as a setting of Psalm 98, and he wrote it back in 1719 as part of his project to create new psalm settings that were more singable and more explicitly focused on Christ. About a century later, someone, perhaps Lowell Mason, perhaps someone else, put the words together with music that drew from the most famous piece of music over the past hundred years, Handel's Messiah, and the result is the song 
that's become a staple of, of the Christmas season. But why? Why do we sing that song, Joy to the World? Why do we sing it at Christmas? And why are we going to sing it here in a minute after I pray? After all, there's nothing in that song about angels or shepherds or Mary or magi or cold winter nights or a cool reception in the end. Why is Joy to the World a Christmas song? Well, because it anchors our hopes today in the midst of our barrenness and emptiness, in the midst of our loneliness and sadness. Friends, there is joy for our world because the King has come and he's coming again. Let earth receive her King and may there be a new beginning during his new realm and reign in his new world. Until that day, we say hallelujah. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, there is joy for us because you are the king who has come and is coming again. And so, Lord, we pray that you would send us forth from this place with great joy in our hearts because we've tasted the new beginning through faith in you. You rule and reign over us now. We've begun to see a little bit of the, of the new world coming as we know conciliation with our enemies. And we've known a change of nature. Indeed, we've begun to see the curse reversed. Lord, we long for that day when we see, shall see it fully and finally. But until that day, Lord, we look forward in faith and hope and above all with joy. We know you, our great King. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's take our hymnals then and turn.